1: Hey, it's Evan, producer on How to L.A. You've probably heard a few episodes from my colleague, Victoria Alejandro, in her Revival House series. It's our weekly love letter to L.A.'s vintage and indie theaters. If you haven't, make sure to do that right away, and definitely make sure to tune in next Thursday for a fresh episode of Revival House, this time profiling vidiots in Eagle Rock. Today, we're revisiting an episode she produced last November, when the Egyptian Theater reopened its doors. So, without further ado, the history of the Egyptian Theater in Hollywood.
2: I'm Brian De Los Santos, and this is How to LA, the show that takes you inside some of LA's history. Today, I'm here at the Egyptian Theater on Hollywood Boulevard with How to LA producer, Victoria Alejandro. The theater just reopened after being closed for a few years. Thank you. You're the first audience to see 70
0: millimeter back in this house. Enjoy, everybody. Thank you.
2: She's been getting the scoop on the reopening and what it means to the city. Hey, Victoria.
0: Hello, Brian.
2: I love that we when we walked up here, it just felt like such a place in the city, like the Egyptian sign, um, the courtyard. There's a little waterfall on the wall. That was Sunday. But it got pretty noisy on Hollywood Boulevard, so we had to scrap some of that conversation and come in studio to finish our chat. I have to say, it was so cool to be there and see that courtyard. There are these big Egyptian-themed murals and a little plaque that says it's a historic cultural monument. So tell me a little bit about who you talked to when diving into this history of the theater and its reopening.
0: Brian, this was such a fun story to report out because I love movies. I love movie theaters in Los Angeles. And I got to speak with Grant Moniger, who is the artistic director at the American Cinematheque. That's the programming group that used to run this theater.
2: When we walked off, then we never knew we were going to come back.
0: And I also spoke with Ross Melnick. He's a historian who focuses on movie theaters here in Los Angeles.
1: The Egyptians opening essentially consecrated on the launch of Hollywood as an institution.
2: You also went to the theater over the weekend and you saw a movie and you spoke to moviegoers. What did they have to say?
0: People were so excited to be here. I came on what was technically the second day of the reopening weekend. That was during the American Cinematheque's 70 millimeter film festival. So they did a screening of the Jacques Tati film, Playtime. That's a French film from the 60s about you know wandering around Paris. People were so excited to catch it on film and to be here and to be back in this space. So here's a little bit of what people had to say. L.A. has so many unique theaters that are, you know, outside AMC. And also we're so excited to see something here and know that they have a slate of movies to show. I was very
2: excited for playtime. Having things like The Egyptian or I love going to the Cinematheque in Santa Monica and Los feelings makes movies feel special and kind of like an event. I'm excited to be here tonight because I like the new seating a lot. I think there isn't a bad seat in the house.
0: Those were folks uh, Yasmeen, Michael, Chris, and Ryan. I talked to most of them in line for popcorn.
2: Oh, popcorn. This theater celebrated its 100th anniversary last year, and still today, there's this big sign that reads Grauman's Egyptian, which gives a nod to that history, right?
0: Yeah, so back in the day, Sid Grauman was a real estate developer. He was a showman in the 20s. Uh, Ross Melnick and I talked about him and what this theater meant.
1: And the thing that is really important to remember about Sid Grauman is that he was as much a real estate developer as he was a marketer and a showman and a producer. The reason we still remember him more than any other movie theater showman in the world is because his name is adorned on those theaters.
2: And I have to point out something that I saw when we were there, the little "n" next to the theater's big sign. What's the deal with that?
0: Yeah, so now there's a little red N for Netflix underneath the Egyptian's really iconic like neon blade sign on Hollywood Boulevard. And that is because Netflix purchased the theater from American Cinematheque in 2020 after it closed during the pandemic. American Cinematheque had owned the building since the 90s, and they run a lot of really cool repertory programming out of different vintage theaters in the city. Uh, Like a lot of people, they were hit really hard financially during the pandemic and so had to sell the Egyptian.
2: Uh, I'm sure that made a lot of people that love LA history or just love cinema overall kind of nervous, right?
0: Yeah, and I heard a little bit of that when I was here. Um, So here's moviegoer Ryan McGurk, one of the people I chatted with in the popcorn line.
2: We hope Netflix doesn't sanitize and make this mainstream cinema central. This is home of Art House.
0: Um, And Brian, do you remember when we were there, we actually stopped into that new Netflix store right next to the theater's courtyard?
2: One of the changes of the reopening of the theater, we're in a Netflix store. They have all these souvenirs from the shows that are on the streaming platform. And um, from Stranger Things to, to Squid Games and Bridgerton, which is super popular. They even have tea.
0: Yeah, and there is a little corner that's like... T-shirts that say the Egyptian on it, um, but yeah, this definitely feels like like a major change that comes with the Netflix branding and the restoration. So you know, stuff like this store full of like show swag might make the classic film lover shudder, but both Ross Melnick and Grant Moniker from American Cinematheque feel that like at the end of the day, saving a movie theater, saving cinema, is a hero thing to do, even if the hero is a streaming service.
1: Anyone who will help reopen and restore a movie palace is going to get hero status from me.
2: We had to close and we we were unsure if we were ever going to come back. That would have been a huge financial burden on the American Cinematheque to be closed that. So then to make this deal with Netflix and have it come back stronger than ever is a real blessing.
0: Also, American Cinematheque has a 100-year lease. So even though Netflix owns the building and shows Netflix movies during the week, American Cinematheque has a deal that they will show vintage films and other programming here every weekend for the next 100 years.
2: That's a long time.
0: Yeah, the theater's been here for 100 years, and, you know, hopefully you can see great movies here for another 100.
2: We'll be right back to dive deeper into the history of the Egyptian right after this break.
1: Hey, what's up, y'all? I'm Pindarvis Harshaw, host of the Right Nowish podcast. Every week, I talk to the people who are creating art and culture and spreading it to the universe.
2: As an artist, you always meet yourself. Every year,
1: you're a different person. Essentially, we normalize a space where you can show up as your authentic self. Check out Right Nowish. Rooted in California's Bay Area, speaking to you.
2: It's so many people of color, so many queer people. It's like I'm being celebrated in
1: my fullness. Available wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Okay, we're back. So let's stick to the history portion of this because you obviously feel it, like even just being outside of it. When did it initially open and what did it mean at that point in history for this part of town?
0: Right. So the Egyptian theater opened in 1922 and I spoke with historian Ross Melnick about just what it was like here in Hollywood then.
1: I think one thing to remember is that Los Angeles, even though now, of course, it's the global capital of movie going and movie making, was not that in the early 1920s. It was New York, and uh, the capital of moviegoing and a film exhibition was also in New York. And a lot of the studios and companies were also based out of New York. Hollywood, on the other hand, was, if, if you will, a kind of a real estate development project. And Sidney patrick Grauman all had an idea that if you could build a place for film exhibition and film production, you could essentially create almost a whole new city a city for film production, a city for film exhibition, a city for tourists, entertainment, and attractions. And one of the premier attractions which would bring people to this area would be the Egyptian theater. So it opened in 1922, but it opened in a way to attract not just people from Los Angeles downtown, not just people from, say, the the beach areas, But it opened in a way that would attract people from around the entirety of California. There were ticket offices set up both in downtown Los Angeles as well as in Hollywood, as well as Long Beach, San Diego, and Santa Barbara to buy tickets in advance just to come down to this theater. You could organize a bus trip that would allow you to go to Hollywood, to go to Musso and Frank, and then go to the Egyptian theater all at the same time. And what began to happen was because of the architecture – people would take photos of this theater because it was uh, in the beginning of, uh, well, really in the middle of Egyptian mania, if you will, or kind of Orientalist fantasy about the Middle East and certainly about the glory of ancient Egypt, which is uh, what is all about the architecture of fantasy as it was known in that era. And the architecture of fantasy is no more exciting than being whisked away, if you will, Thief of Baghdad style, to to. Egypt by going into a movie theater and I think that's just something to think about about what is a movie palace in this period it's a way to get off the street and be essentially uh, taken into a palace of fantasy so going into a movie palace with ushers and everyone catered to your desire gave you that sensation as they said to live like a king and queen for the price of a ticket and then once the lights go down and the movie goes up, you're transported once again to wherever the filmmakers and the projectionists want to take you. It's all about intimacy, to recapture a sense of community in a tough time. So we are related somewhat by the world we live in and by the frenzy of capitalism. And remembering that after World War I and after the flu pandemic of the late 1910s, people want to come back together and they want to come back together in event Spaces that are exciting and new and part of the Roaring Twenties. And all of this is mapped together. I think you can make some comparisons to where we are today.
0: It really was, you know, accessible opulence for everyday audiences. Oh my God, I love that term. (laughs) And the theater became a historical cultural monument in 1993. And of course, the next year, 1994, the Northridge earthquake really hit the city hard. The Egyptian was really damaged. There were visible holes in the walls. There was a lot of water damage. And that earthquake damage is part of why the American Cinematheque bought the theater from the city for a dollar. A dollar. It was so damaged, the city didn't really know what to do with it. But because of its monument status, it did have to be preserved somehow. So American Cinematheque spent millions of dollars in the 90s to repair the theater That was also actually part of like the city plan to restore Hollywood Boulevard, kind of to really make Hollywood Boulevard a place that people want to go and spend time. It was really important to movie going and community and Hollywood, you know, 100 years ago in the 90s. And today, now that it's reopened, I think the Egyptian is really going to continue to be monumental to Hollywood Boulevard. Here's Ross Melnick again.
1: You know, for in, in 2020, everyone said, well, that's it for movie theaters. It was a good run, and I hope you all enjoyed it. But we've had some incredible uh, experiences this year. Barbenheimer this summer, the Taylor Swift mania at our movie houses. I think the proof is that if you give people an event experience, if you give people an, uh, a movie-going reason to leave their house and congregate together, they will go in droves. And in some cases, people drove hundreds of miles to go to IMAX screenings of Oppenheimer. They dressed up in all pink to go to Barbie. They drove with six of their friends to go see uh, Taylor Swift. The reality is is that movie theaters are have the eulogy for movie theaters have been written for 125 years. The thing about movie theaters that's interesting is they are in many cases, our last communal space that is for everyone. We don't all go to the same uh, church, synagogue, mosque. We don't all go to the same meeting houses, but we can go to the same movie theater. Here you have a commitment from Netflix and the American Cinematheque to make sure that at this theater at least, there's going to be committed programming and to a, and to celebrate this art form. It's hard to really figure out at this point because I think we're still still in it, how difficult and even some cases traumatic the pandemic was. And I think that as you get out of that, you see something like this and you remember driving by and not knowing what was going on with it. You drive by other theaters nearby that are still closed. Seeing this reopen, I think it means that we are almost out of that period. We are back to a world full of possibilities. We're back to a movie-going landscape that is growing and expansive. And we're back to the reason why this is still, as far as I'm concerned, the greatest movie-going city in the world
2: so going back to the movie going how was it for you because as you just mentioned you saw a movie there friday
0: brian it looked so good the projection was so beautiful uh the sound was incredible and also i have to say um it sounds like the least important detail the seats were the comfiest seats i've ever sat in
2: they're the most important they're the
0: most comfortable seats there's so much space um and also because i was talking to people online i got in a little late and i had to kind of go in the front to the side and i was so worried i was gonna be like craning my neck the whole time but the sightlines were so good and i was so comfortable and what about you do you think you're gonna see a movie there
2: uh so fun fact uh, my friend lives just at the, p- the block north in las palmas and um Again, I didn't know this existed. Right, it's
0: been there for 100 years. I know,
2: I know. I've been alive for 33 and I can't believe I missed it. But now that I know this piece of L.A. history, I want to go back there and experience a a film, maybe in Spanish, you know, when they have something in Spanish. They do.
0: I think the American Cinematheque is actually, I think they're showing the film uh, Soy Cuba from the 60s. Okay. I'll send you a link.
2: And so this is why I love exploring LA with people, including you and people on the team. Um, and you brought me to a side of town that I'm always here every week, but now I can do something different.
0: Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited I could bring you there.
2: Thank you for helping me explore LA.
0: And thank you for having me on the show.
2: Thanks to Grant Moniger and Ross Melnick and moviegoers Yasmin, Michael, Chris, and Ryan. This episode is produced by Victoria Alejandro. Our other team members include Erica Washington, Monica Bushman, Evan Jacoby, and Megan Botell. Tune in tomorrow for a new episode of How to LA. Thanks, y'all. Adios. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes LA a better place to live.